Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's wonderful to see so many of you here. And we've achieved the first thing of the evening, which is not falling over on the very steep rake yes. of this stage. We felt that would be a terrible start. Uh, my name is Kate Moss, and it's an enormous pleasure uh, to have a fantastic mini panel here uh, today <laughs> to talk about Jane and Charlotte, um, you know, the author and, of course, the heroine of the play. So you all have your programmes, so you know Lucy's biography. Lucy is here. Uh, Lucy is a journalist and columnist. She's the author of many books, including The Reluctant Bride and a book called Bookworm, which is coming out about children's literature. But she's also one of the co-presenters of a new programme on Charlotte, Emily and Anne Bronte, which will be on the BBC next year. And you have heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and in the middle, we have Claire Harmon, who is a poet and a writer and author of five literary biographies, including books about Sylvia Townsend Warner and Fanny Burney. But of course, most significantly, um, the author of the new biography of Charlotte Bronte, which came out a few weeks ago. And we will, of course, um, be talking in between times, but Claire will uh, be signing books um, in the National Theatre Bookshop at the end of the platform, if any of you would like to get your books signed. It is a fantastic read. Um, I'm going to start, actually, with you, Claire. Uh, the very first biography of Charlotte Bronte, 1857. Yeah. Mrs. Gaskell, Elizabeth Gaskell, asked by Charlotte's father to write it, which is an extraordinary achievement for any author's life. She mm. was only 38 when she died, Charlotte. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about the genesis of Jane Eyre how the book came to be, the enormous success it straightaway was when it came out in 1847, mm. and then what led you to be in the long and traditional, amazing people who have been biographers of Charlotte Bronte. Yes, well, when Mrs. Gaskell's book came out in 1857, I mean, this was, as Kate was saying, it's very, very soon after Charlotte had died, and it was only 10 years after Jane Eyre would, had been published. So, you know, she was already incredibly famous, but only as Cara Bell, because, you know, as you'll, many of you will know, um, Charlotte Bronte published uh, Jane Eyre under, and all her works in her lifetime under this uh, and androgynous pseudonym, Cara Bell. So only a few people would have known until Mrs. Gaskell sort of uh, opened it all out in 1857 that, that she'd been this Parsons' daughter in Yorkshire. So, I mean, the, the story of the Brontes then kind of almost overcame the story of, of Cara Bell's actual achievements. But, but um, Cara Bell, Charlotte, had published um, this novel in 1847 totally anonymously, um, and it was her second novel, uh, and it's got a kind of a peculiar energy, because she was desperate at that point to get something published, and her sister's novels, Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey, had been accepted, and, and her hers novel, had been yeah, had not, rejected, yeah. exactly, it kept coming back, so, um, uh, and she, she loved the professor, and she kept nagging publishers to try and publish it all through her life, but, you know, so it's like her favourite first mm. novel, and then the second novel that she'd written much more quickly, and really with a kind of more, more of a kind of desperation to, to, to catch up and to get into print, um, turned out to be this astonishing bestseller, you know, which um, Thackeray, um, George Smith, everybody was stopping everything and, and uh, yeah, normal life stopped while they were reading Jane Eyre. And unlike uh, the reactions to Wuthering Heights by Emily, mm. uh, the reviews were extraordinary, really, for a first novel, weren't they? And she yes. was still anonymous at that stage. Yes, uh, they were extraordinary because it's a, it's a really revolutionary novel. And 
I think that actually the, the pseudonyms they chose indicated that they were women. I think if uh, uh, they're too androgynous, I think a man seeking not to be known by his works would have not chosen those. I think it just signalled we're women, Cara Ellis and Acton Bell. But all the same, under that, um, that kind of veil, she was able to be very forthright. And she, because Jane Eyre made her very famous, she, towards the end of her life, wanted to either adopt a different pseudonym or to drop Cara Bell, because that wasn't secret enough for her. She wanted the, she said she wanted to walk invisible, and she really did value her privacy and her sort of uh, autonomy, which is, I think, partly what we'll be talking about, because obviously Jane Eyre is associated very closely with the author, mm -hmm. and it's exactly what she didn't want to do. She wanted to be utterly secret and private and separate, and for people not to read into the work things about herself. And Lucy, uh, we're here on this amazing set. Um, all of you will know that this is a devised piece by the company. This is not an adaptation of Jane Eyre. Uh, Sally Cookson, of course, is the director. And it was um, at Bristol Old Vic. It's a co-production with Bristol Old Vic. Now here at the National, uh, down to one uh, performance rather than two different parts, although it is over three hours long. Um, but it's one of those productions and plays that has achieved almost the impossible thing, which is being both utterly true to the spirit of the novel, yet completely <laughs> different in every single possible way, the movement, the light, the colour. So can you remember when you first read Jane Eyre, Lucy, and what it was that made you think, this is a book that I will cherish? I can remember the first time... I read it because it had exactly the opposite. It had all the light and the colour and the energy drained out of it because we were reading it um, <laughs> aloud <laughs> in class. In class, fantastic. Yeah. Um, and pre GCSE as well. So we hadn't even got the kind of teenage angst and hormones that really got going that it really would sort of bring something to it. <laughs> um, so it was absolutely deathly experience. But the weird thing was, my sister read it, who has read three books in her life, and two of those are Haynes Car Manuals, <laughs> <laughs> read Jane Eyre when she was. 10, I think, you know, something just ridiculous, um, and has loved it ever since. And when she, was, when she was a teenager, we used to get phone calls with there'd been another adaptation on the telly or something. Going, They've got it all wrong again. They've got it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think what it comes down to is partly context, you know, just, just how you come, come to it, but it's also a question of temperament. I'm much better suited to um, Anne Bronte's stuff because I'm, I'm not a romantic. My sister's a romantic. Um, I'm not, I, I, like, I like the stoicism of Anne and I like, you know, the, the sort of relentless, quiet horrors of Tenant of Wildfell <laughs> Hall. Jane Eyre and Charlotte, you know, I admire them, you know, beyond the telling of it, but love them, it's, it's too much. No, we're not, bit, we're, not, we're not doing that one tonight, because we discovered <laughs> earlier in the green room that I'm an Emily woman, <laughs> this is a Charlotte woman, and this is an Anne woman. We're, we're not doing that. Yeah. So you have to tell us why you like Jane Eyre. I like Jane Eyre. <laughs> because. Very good. Um, because. Especially rereading it, re it now after all these years. Um, and having obviously done a, a, a bit of writing, uh, <laughs> not a quite the same genius, but I've done a bit of... Just the incredible voice that, that's completely unique and still speaks to you clearly across... You know, however many, 168 years, you know, so many, gen, you know, reading generations at least. And, and it just fascinates me that, that, A, so much of the legend is true, that they were these isolated three in, on, the, on the moors. And what happens when you strip away, what can happen when you strip away 
so much of the... They were sort of oddly... I don't know if you agree with this, but I think they're sort of oddly free of... Um, so, social influence. You know, they know of it, yeah. <laughs> but because of their situation, they're actually relatively free of it, and that gives them this incredible freedom and voice and fearlessness. Mm. Yeah. And they would have been extraordinary wherever, they, even if they'd been in the middle of London, I'm sure, but they have this great gift of isolation. Yes, yes, they and were. So yeah, they did. They did uh, and that certainly comes through in Jane Eyre. With the, with, I mean, that's part of its vitality, is that although the Brontes were all incredibly well-read, they were well-read in a kind of strange, you know, home-educated, as it were, way, and they had the run of their father's library, so they also, very unusually for girls, were reading Byron and lots mm -hmm. of, of, of much more sort of outré... Uh, writers, but you, I mean, what fascinates me about the kind of vitality of Jane Eyre is that that it so so nearly didn't happen. I mean, it so nearly wasn't published, and yet it still would have been there. It would have been an unpublished manuscript full of the, all this intensity. And Charlotte Bronte would still have been Charlotte Bronte, even if we'd never known anything about her. You know, the, it's all packaged in that book right from the start, and and you know, it's quite quite amazing that. That, that, I mean, that other writers might have, have similarly just... It makes you just, wonder about the numbers game, doesn't it? Yeah, How many exactly. other women out there that just didn't have that weird, twisted kind of yeah. freedom yeah. and that just went to waste? Yeah. But you can't believe that that's just an incredible concatenation of circumstances mm. that the three yes. geniuses found yes. themselves in. <laughs> you know, it's partly a product of their environment, so surely there must have been... Yeah. Well, it's also, I think, when you look back, um, and, and you write about this so wonderfully mm. in, in the biography... The idea that all of them knew that writing mattered. Mm. They were doing it all the time. Yes. And that's good. That was a dramatic moment. It <laughs> slide into the lights. Yes. You know, sort of, we should have thunder and lightning. Just proving um, the yes. But I think that is something that is very interesting about building up to Jane Eyre. Mm. The idea that Charlotte always wanted to put down the things she felt so deeply mm. on paper mm. so as not to let them go, to make them matter and count for something. Yes, indeed. And she was, as a person, one of the least complacent people you could imagine. So, I mean, her, the intensity of Jane Eyre is also the intensity of the author, you know, that she was, uh, she felt everything very much, you know, she, she suffered a great deal. She, she was, you know, oversensitive to everything, really. Very, um, you know, uh, if she went into a room, she'd be totally alert to what was going on. And that really comes through in all her writing, that, that there's no... Uh, she's kind of lacking a skin, you know, so she's, um, uh, she's a suffering and, and, and pain-attracted person, but, and uh, it makes her work... Which is not at all tiresome. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't, but... but You're letting us down no. now, so you look <laughs> far too chirpy for this. So it's, it's really, I mean, it, it's... It, obviously, she, she's an imaginative writer too, but she's a writer who kind of offloads into her work a great deal of, of, of very intense feeling, which I think readers get the sense that, it, that it's something that she didn't invent but she did experience. I mean, you get that even if you don't read a biography of her. And, and, and going back to the idea, you know, partly how the platform was uh, described as this, mm. the, the, the feminist writer and the feminist uh, hero, I would call her, you know, mm. in the sense of the protagonist of the novel, it was a deliberate and very unusual decision mm. that Charlotte made, that Anne and Emily weren't sure about, to make the protagonist, Jane, yeah. plain and small. Now, that does seem to me a very determined thing to do. You know, you already have one hand behind your back yes. as a novelist. Yeah. So do you think that that is one of the significant things about 
the novel that makes it live, that she's not the princess in the tower. Yes, indeed. Although, of course, she gets the happy ending, so the novelist is able to work it all around to, uh, you know, to, for her to be rewarded in what might be an unconventional way, because she isn't gorgeous, she isn't um, privileged. Um, and the whole point of, in Jane Eyre is that, this, um, that, that Jane is equal. I mean, the word equality, equal, e e egalitarian principles go right through it. And when the novel was published, a lot of people thought it was dangerously kind of um, uh, revolutionary. It was in the year of revolution. It was the year that Marx was, was um, about to publish um, Das Kapital, and it was the year when Europe was going up in, in flames. And, and, you know, so this anonymous novel um, did seem to kind of flow into a really revolutionary spirit, you know, saying that, because uh, Jane in the first episode says that she's, you know, when she's being bullied by the reeds, um, she says she kind of rises up like any rebel slave and, uh, you know, unjust, unjust. I mean, it's a word that comes through in this production a lot. Um, and uh, um, Madeline kind of shouts it out a lot and, and you know, has Madeline this kind who of... Play, yeah, who, who plays, plays Jane. Jane. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's really... I was fascinated by the adaptation because it really brought out that sort of um, revolutionary spirit of the book. And, of course, it's also a feminist book, but it's got, it's got all this kind of seething discontent and unquietness in it which, um, you know, was, was almost, it's like Bronte's subconscious because she, she was a Tory and she was, a, you know, a kind of um, a, 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 a parson's daughter in the backwoods of Yorkshire. And um, she would have certainly not, not, she didn't want to be associated with revolutionary politics, but it just kind of comes out. Yes, because it's one of those things, I don't know whether you felt this when you first read it, Lucy, or indeed when you were rereading it, but actually to call it a love story is to misunderstand um, and it's the sense of the unjustness about how children are treated, how women are treated, how poor people are... I mean, that is the theme. And I, was that something when you, you were rereading was more live in your mind? Now you're a grown-up as opposed to your sister going, oh, I want to be Jane and, you know, go on the moors. I think, I think what struck me now is, is, that, is that you've got this very and increasingly rare nowadays, this this heroine with an unshakable moral core and the rest of the world and the plot and everything has to bend around it. So I'm just so, mm. you know, you can, the, you know the, the wife must be, the mad wife must be burned to the ground. Rochester must be mm -hmm. maimed before she can make that little bit of compromise and, and, you know, find happiness because otherwise she cannot. She cannot marry St. John Rivers. She cannot marry Rochester. Nothing, you know, she, she will not bend. And that's the, the striking thing to me now. And that's, that's the most, almost the most revolutionary part of it now and almost the most feminist part that, that she is completely sure of herself, her, her, her morality and her position. And best she can do is wait for circumstances to change, because she certainly isn't. Although she's almost worn down by St. John Rivers, isn't she? And well, who kind of, isn't? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, God. God, he's, he's, he's no, no reward. But I mean, the, 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 that, those scenes when Jane is trying to, desperately trying to just not be, uh, not have to accept him. Just not. Yeah, exactly. You know, just fight him off. We've all she, had dates yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just um, go. But there's, there's a really, when I was rereading the, the novel a couple of years ago, I, I, I was really struck by the scene. It's meant to be the kind of idyll 
the idyll in the middle of, of Jane Eyre when, you know, it's before she knows about the inconvenient uh, pre-existing wife and Rochester has proposed to her because, in fact, they've had that, you know, they're separating and then, hey, it all turns into a lovely proposal, so that's good. But, I mean, she's a little bit sort of unquiet about it and they go off to have the shopping trip. Yes, I love this bit of you. You're yeah. so right about this. Yeah. Carry uh, on. She goes, she goes <laughs> and it's like sort of pretty woman. You think, oh, yeah, she's going, you know, she's going to be taken out and, and treated. And Rochester's flinging himself around the shops trying to buy her jewellery and stuff and she is very uh, sort of priggishly really it seems quite austere yeah, yeah it's very austere she's just yeah. herself exactly but I mean she's being very stringent saying oh no no I won't have that oh that's a very Don't nice pink one up, yeah, yeah exactly uh, I'm going to have that that uh, grey one and the black one that'll be fine to get married in and uh, um, but then what she says coming back she says that she feels anger and degradation it's so striking you think hang on hang on she's engaged to be married to the man that she's madly in love with and he's kind of you know uh, wanting to get his checkbook out um, it's so it's so correct for her to feel that and it's still so shocking all these years later to have somebody actually express truly a feminist um, voice because what what Jane is saying there is that until she's equal it's a totally uneven play, playing field and she wants to earn the money back to pay him back for that black dress and um, because because you know the world is not equal it's going to take her a very long time but she's still on principle and everything she does is on this kind of really rigid principle she's going to do it and until then she's going to feel degraded it's brilliant it's such an antidote to because I'm worth it because, yeah. she really is, you know, because she really is worth it. I mean, that's the whole... Jane's point is that I really am worth it. I really am your equal spiritually and in every important way. You know, the this fact that I'm... Consumer capitalism yeah. has taken such a great bite out of feminism. It's, it's yeah. hard to... It's, you know, you, you get back to first principles with her. Exactly. And it's, it's really shocking and enlivening and also quite um, quelling to see yeah. how, you know, how we've deteriorated from that sort... I mean, nobody could write that boldly today in the same field. But there's also that seem running all the way through it, which we know from Charlotte's own biography was mm. very much her experience of having been in Belgium and fallen in love mm. with Constantine uh, Heiger and all of these things. But the idea that without an intellectual uh, match, mm. uh, a match of conversation, that none of it quite matters. So that part is also very modern in the novel. Yes, that you need to have a, a soulmate, a spiritual mm. mate, which, of course, then... Uh, I don't know what other people think about the ending of Jane Eyre, but it, it's, it's a bit creepy that he has to be blinded, you know, in order to, to kind of uh, even things out a bit. But, um, yes, <laughs> um, but then he kind of recovers a little bit, doesn't he? He kind of gets slightly yeah, better later him, on yeah, in time to see his children. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's so striking about the production um, on whose set we sit is that there is a voice given, a, a, a musical mm. voice, I won't say any more than that for those of you who have not yet been in, uh, to Bertha uh, Mason, the, mm. you know, the famous, the, the original Gee. mad woman in the attic. And those of you who, of course, have read Gilbert and Gubber's great feminist uh, work about Victorian literature back in the 70s, mm. which was called The Mad Woman in the Attic. Um, but the choice here has been very clever mm. because it picks up all of the things that Jean Rhys's novel, White Sargasso mm. Sea, did, that why would Bertha Mason not be furious that she's been taken thousands of miles away from home, she's been given a name that is not hers, she's been treated as hysteric and mad and other, and why do we see her as a mad woman? Why mm. do we not see her as an angry woman? So what do you both feel about her in the novel um, in terms of that representation is she simply 
the man that Charlotte loved, the representation of his wife that stood in the way, or is that actually the visceral rage of Charlotte that is too much to put for Jane Mm. put onto this other woman in the attic. Oh, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? This kind of overflow of, of Jane. Just too angst. much of Yes, Jane. yes. Well, I mean, that could well be the case. Um, and, but in the novel, it's so clever because it's like a detective novel, isn't it, in some ways? And the whole thing about, you know, what the mystery of Grace Poole, what's going on here, it's very cleverly paced. So you don't really, I mean, I didn't, anyway, become aware of Bertha until quite far into the book. And this production is brilliant because of the way it kind of re-centres... Uh, you know, and makes makes you just think, oh yeah, well, you know, you don't have to have uh, the representation of somebody being nuts, um, you know, and, and it's very, it's it's a very dignified um, representation of, of Bertha here. So, um, but yes, yeah, certainly in the novel, it, it it also mops up some of that of the author's feeling of you know this kind of angry, pulsating, jealous other person who is both an obstacle in the way of her love for somebody else, but also, um, you know, a, a, a really demanding presence who's got her own legitimate, you know, fury. And it's, yeah. the, it, it's the woman that is feared, mm. the wild, out-of-control woman, rather than the feminine woman yes. that yes, is Blanche, going to be... Yeah. I mean, I don't know, when I first read it, Lucy, I was terrified of mm -hmm. Bertha. Uh, you know, the scene... It was chapter, you know, right, mm. right in the beginning, isn't it, when she comes down and rips yeah. the wedding veil. Mm. I mean, I've had a lifelong aversion to both veils and indeed fire ever yeah. since, I think. But, it, 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 I mean, it, she's a terrifying character. Do you know, she, oh, she barely registered on... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, both obviously the first time and the times I've come across it since. I, I, I suspect it comes back to me just not being a... You know, when it all gets too much, I'm just going to back away in it. But it, she seems, she's obviously just not a very good reader, but she just seems to me this kind of melodramatic plot device. And much as I like the idea, you know, Gilbert and Gabar's idea that she's, she's the unspeakable bits of Jane and Charlotte, just as, you know, Heathcliff's meant to be the unspeakable bits of... Cathy well, is unspeakable, but... Um, you know, the even more unspeakable bits of... We're of, not going to do an Emily of <laughs> Emily, I'm just saying. Cathy... Um, <laughs> I, so, I she, I so that, I, that, that yeah. no, because it, it doesn't work for me on a sort of visceral level, and I like I like the sort of theory and the academic side of it. But I, I th don't you think that if if Charlotte did, do you think she would have intended that? That's just an unconscious thing that we that we interpret as readers, rather, or, than and that maybe that she did. But I never feel right about giving too much credence to stuff that requires m me to believe it of someone else believing it. You get this weird triangulation. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you, obviously uh, Jane Eyre and lots of Victorian novels seem to kind of fall into things that one can analyse very comfortably with later theoretical sort of constructs. But some of those constructs only exist because the literature of the time actually presents us with these amazing archetypes. And I, I think Bertha's are really... I, I mean, I don't, I don't mind the melodrama. I think the melodrama is part of this kind of type that's being represented. And also all the stuff, I mean, Bronte's novel looks a bit like a sort of, you know, something from the psychiatrist's couch because it's got the red room and, you know, there's been plenty of scholarly articles written about the red room and being locked up in there and all the rest of it. Um, and the mad woman in the attic obviously is a great image. But, um, you know, the energy is coming from the novel and into the theory, uh, I think, rather than the other way around. Mm. So um, I think scholars have just been very lucky to have these great novels, which I think, on, I think Jane Eyre's got this amazing... It does everything. It's got the love story. It's got this kind of, as I say, like a detective story in it. And it's also got 
all this um, kind of matter. It's got all this um, uh, revolutionary and theoretical matter. I mean, it's got, she's, she's a real thinker. I mean, Bronte was actually a very good analyst of situations and of people. And, uh, and plus, it's also got quite a lot of revenge taking on Monsieur Heger and, and his wife, who by that time, by 19, uh, 1947, 1847, um, this uh, teacher she'd had in Brussels had ceased to write to Bronte. And so in a way, she, w she must have felt free to just dish him up in a novel. Um, you know, because if he wasn't going to answer her letters, he could jolly well be Mr. Rochester. Yeah. And if he wasn't going to read, then he wouldn't know. Yes, indeed. You know, if he wasn't yes. going to read the novels. Yeah. Uh, you touched on it at the beginning. And, of course, Lucy, you're a columnist and a journalist and you write in different areas and I'm a novelist and you study those of us who write novels. <laughs> yes, and, um, yes, so watch out. <laughs> um, but you, you touched on it and I think it's a very interesting question in the context of feminism of the author and feminism of the text. Mm. Is it a dangerous thing uh, for any creative person to have a focus on their actual life then corresponded into what is in the novel that therefore suggests that the magic somehow hasn't happened, that this isn't imagination, this isn't genius, as, as Lucy said. <laughs> this is simply autobiography. And I know the word autobiography appears on the first edition yes. of Jane Eyre. Yes. So what do you think about that, the fact that we are putting Charlotte and Jane cheek by jowl? Is this mm. a good thing for the writer or a bad thing for the writer? Well, as I was uh, indicating before, she wouldn't have wanted, I mean, Charlotte Bronte wouldn't have wanted to be put right up next to her work like that. In fact, she wanted as much distance between them as possible to leave her free to make her novel as autobiographical as she wished without it being kind of redounding upon herself. Um, and, you know, writers write about what they know quite a lot of the time. I mean, not all of them, obviously. But um, uh, Charlotte kind of almost uh, absurdly put the little details of her life into books. I mean, Villette's full of, like, trips to the salon. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> when you read it, you think, oh, did this woman ever do anything that she didn't put into a novel? Yeah. You know, uh, and they didn't even have expenses <laughs> in those days. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it's, it's because she... Um, uh, but, but Charlotte herself, uh, when she was challenged by one of her friends about, um, you know, lining up people in Shirley with people they knew in the West Riding, Charlotte said, you know, how can anybody possibly think this was about X, Y and Z, when they were clearly very close portraits of X, Y and Z? And, and Charlotte obviously thought, well, as many fiction writers do, I've just changed it a bit, you know, and that's enough. I mean, obviously, I know somebody who did this and somebody who did that, and, and, and people do feed things through into novels and think that they... Well, because they are. They're quite artificial to the novelist, but to outside readers, they look like autobiography. Mm. But she was appalled by any thought that people would think that Emily mm. was yes. that sort of sexual, wild, passionate, vengeful creature, wasn't she? She yeah. was more concerned for that almost than her own at the time. Yes, and that is quite a, quite a thing, isn't it? I mean, what came out of Emily Bronte's mind and into that novel? And Emily herself, because when, when Anne and Charlotte were having it read to them, you know, because the sisters used to walk round and round the dining table in the dining room at Haworth, and um, uh, Charlotte has left a description of how she and Anne were kind of frightened by the readings of Wuthering Heights in its early stages. And when challenged, she said the author, that's Emily, would kind of feign to be astonished that anybody could possibly think that was in any way weird. You know, when Heathcliff's kind of punching people across rooms, I mean, nobody moves normally, do they, in Wuthering Heights? They'll kind of struggle and punch and mm. shove. It's really, it's a violent go off and hang puppies. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a kind of violent, sadistic book. Um, you know, puzzlingly aggra aggravated. And you think, well, hang on... Um, 
Um, you know, em Emily Bronte, um, what was she up to to make her think that that was fairly normal? And so between, <laughs> you know, you, Lucy, you mentioned this, and I think we're all uh, seduced by it or guilty of it, however we see it. There is something that adds to Jane Eyre, to Tenant of Wildfeld Hall, to Wuthering Heights, whatever it is, the idea that these three writers mm. were there together doing it. Do you think that is part of why they are enduring? Jane Eyre is such an enduring novel, yeah. the sort of mythology around the family as well as her. Or do you think actually in terms of a, a 19th century text, you know, that it's never been out of print mm. uh, since, since it first came out, do you think that the text itself lives, uh, stands beyond, I suppose, the mythology of the family? Yes, I certainly do. Um, and so uh, I, th I think that uh, as, as well of Wuthering Heights and uh, certainly Tenet of Wildfell Hall. Um, but of course, the Bronte myth has augmented the whole thing. And it is quite astonishing. I, th I mean, because they're very, very, very different novelists and people. Um, and the fact that they were all um, siblings and that they were functioning in the same room. I mean, it was just that the dining room was their study. They had you know, a bedroom, but you know, they didn't, that's where they worked. Um, you know, and, and within one year, those, those three, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, and Agnes Grey, were all written from the same household. I mean, it is, it is quite extraordinary. So, um, I mean, I, obviously, it, there's an augmenting effect of them all being siblings, but they are also very outstanding novelists. And today, I mean, I'm sure many of you saw that, that fragments written by Charlotte mm -hmm. um, have come Back on back to light, oh, really, okay. haven't they? Yes, yes. Have you seen this? It's no, I haven't. No. no, they've just discovered that uh, the Bronte mother uh, lost uh, apparently all of her things in a, a shipwreck. Yes. Um, but it turns out that a particular book of Maria's survived, and there are some oh, letters the one and that's a poem. Come back, yes. yes, the one that's come back to the parsonage. Come back yes, to that's the right. parsonage, yes, which is coming indeed. back today. Um, I'm afraid we must, however, give the stage back to the players, um, <laughs> who will need to warm up um, uh, for tonight's performance, which is at 7 o'clock. Those of you who have not yet seen uh, this production of Jane Eyre, you are in for a treat. Um, it runs until early next year. Um, Claire will be signing copies of her uh, biography of Charlotte Bronte. It is, of course, the bicentenary next year. The book is just out. Uh, the, it is heartbreaking the way that you write about, as, as Lucy has said, the loss of all the siblings. And even if you only read two pages, just read how Claire talks about what it was like for Charlotte to go back to the house where they had walked and talked about their writing every evening in the dining room to discover that all the other footsteps had gone is worth the cover price alone. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, Lucy Mangan and Claire Harmon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you.